Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome into this episode of Power Players, powered by Radio.com. I'm Danielle McCartan, your host, DMC. In this episode, episode 12, I will talk with MMA pioneer, UFC champion, current VP of one championship, and no doubt, Hall of Famer, in my opinion, Misha Takedown Tate. We'll cover the boys that tried to make her quit wrestling in high school, her symbiotic relationship with Ronda Rousey, reinventing oneself after retirement. By the way, she's now, like I said, vice president of one championship, Asia's largest sports media property. And of course, the first time she's speaking about the surprise at-home birth of her son, Daxton. Buckle in, everyone. This is a great one. Misha Tate, we all know what you do and the long list of things that you've accomplished, but if I wanted to get to know you, where should I start? Um, I think cupcakes are always a great way to start getting to know me. <laughs> um, I Yeah, my nickname is Cupcake. Obviously, I, I love cupcakes, but I got the nickname because when I started fighting a long time ago, I think I had my first fight in 2006, basically, I was pretty girly for the standards of what people thought that women fighting, I guess, would be like I guess they thought we were gonna be all these like burly wannabe dudes or something you know because I was like to do my hair and makeup and you know wear dresses and things so people just kind of took me lightly right like oh she's definitely not gonna be tough she's way too girly and even like some of my opponents and whatnot so I just kind of got this nickname like cupcake it's just like you're not what you want to be called in a combat sport like if you're wrestling if you're fighting if you're doing anything jujitsu I mean you don't want to be you don't want to be a cupcake, you know, it's kind of like an insult, right? So I kind of just like, okay, you know, it put a chip on my shoulder to like prove people wrong. And that's how I got the nickname cupcake. But beyond that, I grew up baking with my mom and I love to bake and I love cupcakes. And that's just another, it's fitting in more ways than one. But I think that wasn't, that wasn't the intention when I got the nickname, but um, it works out. Except I don't like chocolate cupcakes. I'm a real weirdo. But I pretty much don't like anything chocolate, but real chocolate, like dark chocolate. That's the only thing chocolate I like. I was watching the WNBA game earlier today and I saw this commercial that it was a statistic that they put out and it said by the age of 14, Girls are dropping out of sports at twice the rate of boys. And for, I thought of you, because we're doing this today, and I, said, and I thought that after deciding against basketball, which you did, had you not decided to join the boys' wrestling team or been accepted onto it even, 
would you have been a part of that statistic? Oh, you know what? So I probably wouldn't have done a sport the winter season, but um, I wouldn't have been a part of that statistics yet. But I think after high school, I definitely would have. Um, if that's, I don't know if there's another statistic after high school, like when you go to college, you know, what's the, the rate that women um, stay in sports? I loved sports. I lived for sports, but I particularly lived for wrestling, but I ran cross country and I did track as well. You know, my senior year, I ended up not running track. I broke my ankle my junior year and in wrestling, and then I wasn't able to really run my junior year right after because I broke it right at the end of the season. And then by the time my senior year came around after wrestling, and it was kind of like the last portion, I just didn't feel like running track. And maybe I was a little late to join that statistic in a way. I saw an interview where you described your wrestling experience as you used the words character building and being with the boys and stuff. And actually, I played baseball with the boys too until they made me switch to softball when I was a freshman in high school. But I played baseball all up until then. When you describe it as character building, I kind of know where you're coming from. But but what exactly did you mean by character building in wrestling? Well, I think um, that in general, women and girls are raised a certain way. And I think it's changing, but I'm speaking to my experience and this isn't you know, I'm not knocking anybody or saying that my parents did a bad job or anything like that. But girls are kind of raised with a certain idea of how we're supposed to carry ourselves. And I think boys are raised with a certain idea of how they're supposed to carry themselves. And wrestling was nowhere in that for me. You know, it, it's not something, it wasn't like a family history. It's not like my dad wrestles, it's not like my mom. It's like no one in my family, besides a great uncle of mine, who also was absolutely not supportive of me wrestling. He's the only family member I knew of, and he did not want me to wrestle because I had to wrestle boys. But I tried to explain to him, I'm like, well, I would wrestle girls if there was more girls, but there are no girls, so I have to wrestle the guys, and we got to start somewhere, you know? And he's like, well, you know, until there's girls to wrestle, you just shouldn't wrestle. I'm like, but uncle, that's not going to happen until, uh, until like, enough of us kind of, like, go through this. And um, so I was, you know, I think one of the first ones to really kind of lead a precedence for women to have the same opportunity to wrestle alongside the guys and actually have opportunity to wrestle other females. So I wrestled all four years, and I wrestled on primarily men, it was challenging. It was really, really challenging because um, when you asked me like character building, it was so tough. And at first they didn't want me to be on the wrestling team. The guys were like, let's get her to quit. And mind you, I had a best friend of mine who joined with me. So she was the only other female on the team. So we kind of stuck together. And I'm really glad that I had her because I think if I would have been by myself, you know, as a young girl, as a freshman in high school, I mean, you're going through so much changes, not just with your body, but you're growing, you know, girls have insecurities. And, and I think without like having another strong female to kind of like lean on and chat with in the locker room afterwards, like how crazy hard that practice was, but we did it, you know, yeah. that camaraderie was really important. It was, it was definitely challenging. And I think the first two weeks when they really tried to get us to quit, I remember when I was asking for them to teach me, like teach me something because I don't know anything yet. You know, most guys had been wrestling like since they were either small children or at least since middle school. And I didn't know anything and they would refuse to, they just put me in with like the best wrestlers just to like, get my ass kicked essentially to like get rid of us. Like that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make practice really hard on us so that we would just get out of the way because obviously we didn't belong. That was the mentality. When we didn't quit, then they really did come around though. We became just a part of the family and the team like anybody else. And it was, it was great, but it definitely took some perseverance. And I think those were the moments that in particular that were character building. And I didn't win very much. 
I didn't win very much at all. Like I was wrestling all guys in my senior year. I wrestled on varsity, you know, because my weight class, I was the only person pretty much. So it was like wrestling varsity guys. So winning was never part of why I did it. You know what I mean? Like most people play sports because you want to win, right? That was like, never, like I, I just, (laughs) I tried not to get pinned. And if that's not character building, I don't know what is, you know, it's like you, you, you have to accept that you're probably going to lose, but you're just going to try your best. You are just going to give it all you've got. You know, those are the couple things that I think were extremely character building for me. And let's fast forward now to your professional MMA career. You've said, I saw it, it made me laugh. You said, I just don't want to get hit in the face. That sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah. (laughs) But here we are looking back on your no doubt Hall of Fame career in such a brutal sport, Misha. Could you take me inside of maybe one of your most poignant pick yourself off the floor kind of moments in your professional career? Yeah, there were a few. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. But I would say... By the way, it still sounds like a terrible idea. Like who wants to get hit in the face for a living? <laughs> but <laughs> but somehow in my twisted mind, I ended up enjoying it. Um, I think there was a couple instances. Obviously, my fights with Rhonda, I had two of them and I lost both. And I thought, you know, she was the champ at the time. And I was like, man, I, I may never get a chance to come back and be a champion. You know, just getting a title shot is one thing, but asking for two is, is a whole other challenge. And, you know, we had this big rivalry and it's like, you really, I really, I worked so hard and I wanted to win that fight so bad and it just didn't happen. And, you know, now I'm retired and that'll probably never be something that I get to go back and get redemption on. But it was really a challenging moment to lose two times to a person that you don't really you're not you know you don't get along with um and then there was another time that i lost to cat zingano that was like for the opportunity to be on the ultimate fighter which i think a lot of people remember that was like where our storyline really took a big boost when ronda and i were coaching against the ultimate fighter so long story short the only reason that i got to be on the ultimate fighter is because unfortunately cat zingano like blew her knee out she had like knee surgery but she beat me and she should have been the one coaching on that season it should have been cat and i'm I'm just lucky it was was me but it, those were three losses that I had that were really hard because there was so much on the line and you work so hard for it and you really want it and when you when it doesn't work out man it's one of those things where you gotta reevaluate like what's important in life and that's, that's when you're like oh you know I gotta count my blessings I got a great family I got this I got that and it humbles you like losing is very, it should be anyways, for me, it always was a very humbling moment and really brings things like it narrows your focus, like what is really important to me. When I watch MMA, UFCs in particular, what gets me every time I watch, 
when someone opens up bleeding, right? It's all over the mat. It's all over your each other. I think that grosses me out. But when that happens, when you make somebody bleed like that, like what goes through your mind? Like, are you worried about what you could possibly pick up with someone else's blood on your body? No, not at all. Like you, you really just don't even have a, a, uh, like an ability to think about that in that moment. At least I didn't, you know, it's part of the game. It's something we desensitize ourselves to because it's just kind of like it happens. And not only does it happen in a fight, but it happens sometimes in the training room. You know what I mean? And, you know, people get bloody noses. I was notorious for getting bloody noses. You're so up close and personal that you just don't have the cognitive recognition in that moment, especially when you're in a fight, to really think about anything else than getting the job done. And that goes for pain too. Like I don't recall feeling much in the way of pain in any of my fights. Like if you watch my first fight with Rhonda in Strikeforce, like my arm literally at my elbow joint, if you haven't seen it, it bends backwards like 90 degrees because she has me in an arm bar and I just refuse to tap. I'm super, super stubborn. That was one of those moments. Like it wasn't painful for me though, but if it was, it's, it's if you're squeamish, you definitely like take warning that that's kind of graphic. <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen on, I guess it was on Snapchat, I guess that your deviated septum surgery, fixing the, the bloody nose, the broken nose. But I mean, maybe now more than during your, your career, but have you had any other procedures to kind of just fix a career of MMA fighting? The only other thing that I had done was um, PRP on my elbow. And that was amazing. That really helped a lot. I was fixed and ready to go shortly after. I had a fight six months after that fight with Rondo, which means I only had about four months to heal. And I had really major, I had grade two tears of my bicep and tricep. And I actually ripped the tendon, the two tendons on either side of my elbow. Basically, where they're tacked down to the bone, they ripped a chunk of bone out with them on either side. So they were just kind of floating there. And then the bone had to like grow back into itself. And yeah, so <laughs> the PRP helped that process a lot because to be able to fight six months after an injury like that is pretty spectacular, I think. Ronda Rousey, you two will always be forever linked. You created a women's division in the UFC with your, your rivalry and stuff. From what I've gathered and what I've seen and what I've watched, it's, it's, it's pretty much a symbiotic relationship. And do you feel that ultimately maybe one of you benefited more than the other from that relationship? Oh, um, you know, I mean, in all fairness, to look at that is potentially to say, I guess I could say that maybe I benefited more because she was so she was so big, you know, she, she just got such, you know, she reached a level of stardom that I never did. And I'm not, I'm not at all jealous of that because I think it's really challenging to be a famous person. And I got like, a, like a taste of it. And I'm like, I don't love this lifestyle. I really don't. I don't love, like, I'm not somebody who needs people to know who I am or recognize me. It's like when I first started fighting, I mean, women's MMA was a joke to most people. Like it was just not taken serious at all. And I just loved it. I love, fighting. I did not do it for money because I certainly wasn't getting paid. I didn't do it for opportunity because there was none. And I, you know, I didn't do it for fame because that was like, I never in a million years thought that would happen, you know? So for all my original motives, it's kind of crazy how that, how it ended up. But yeah, perhaps, you know, it helped boost my career in, in a lot of ways. But I also think in retrospect, it did the same for her because it 
finally got eyes on women's MMA. It was our fight together that really made people care about women's fighting and kind of put it on the platform. And, and that was the fight that, you know, when Dana White watched that fight, that was the one that changed his mind that said, you know, women are going to come and be a part of the UFC. So maybe without myself, you know, maybe Ronda wouldn't be the star that she is today too. So that's because that's, that's a great question. I guess um, depends how you look at it. I saw that you said that you and Rhonda should enter the Hall of Fame together. And that obviously wasn't the case. Did you watch her induction speech? And, and what kind of went through your mind if, in fact, you did watch it? You know, I didn't watch it, but I did hear bits about it. I can't recall the specifics. I'm one of those people, obviously, Rhonda's not my favorite person, so I don't really tend to follow her career too much post everything. But yeah, I mean, I felt like because it was her and I, I guess, that got started in it together, you know, and to be unbiased and unfair again, you know, I had been doing it a lot longer before she came along and became a part of it. And that's not taking anything away from her. But it's also when you look at the development process of like women in fighting and like all the things that a lot of the girls that came before Rhonda, including myself had to do, you know, I just felt like, you know, we should be, yeah, like in, inducted at the same time, but I'm still not inducted into the, the hall of fame, you know, and it's been years now. So it's one of those things that I've kind of, oh, I've gotten used to it. It is the Rhonda show and she's going to be treated how she's going to be treated. I'm going to treat, treat how I'm treated and, and it's okay, you know, cause I'm at a happy, beautiful point in my life. And I really thought about it at that time. And then I just never like, I don't give it any more thought and energy. Like I don't care if I'm ever in the UFC Hall of Fame. It's not like something that I need to complete my career. You know what I mean? I think you'll make it there. Like, I mean, as like a pioneer of, of all of this to begin with. No? Well, yeah, I mean, you would think so, but it's one of those things that I'm just not giving it a lot of thought or energy to. And it, to be honest, it doesn't bother me if I am or if I'm not. I mean, I think I should be someday, but if I never am, I'm going to give it like zero energy and thought. I don't, I don't care. It doesn't make or break anything. I have a beautiful family and a great career and all these things I know we'll probably touch on in a minute, but I'm so good where I'm at that it's not something that I feel like I need, you know? Safe to say you haven't contacted her, talk with her post-career. No. <laughs> no, no, we, yeah, we never bothered to try to reconnect on any level, you know, and it's, and people still, I still get that sometimes, you know, was that real, that rivalry? I mean, like, yeah, it really was real. And this is not the WWE, like, we're not making this up. Like, this is just, honestly, we just felt strongly about each other and we happened to be in a sport where we could punch each other in the face and that's really what it was it was tried and true so i want to tell you on an earlier episode of this podcast i talked with amanda kessel she's an olympic gold silver ice hockey player and one of my listener questions they asked her if there would ever be a professional hockey league and her answer surprised me because now i'm paraphrasing but she basically said that a pro league at this point would not be sustainable because the pool of players isn't as strong as you would like it to be. Someone like you who's been part of MMA and UFC pretty much from the beginning, where do you feel that the sport sits among women now in 2020? Well, I think the talent pool definitely continues to increase. The number of women that are doing it increase. But what's also interesting is that we've kind of had our first flux of women retiring. There's a generation that was before me. It was smaller, but they kind of missed the window of ever being in the UFC. You know, I, so I think like Ron and my generation was the first one that people kind of got great exposure to. And, you know, we've started to retire. And um, I think, you know, Amanda Nunes has spoken up about her potentially looking at retirement before too long. You know, she's kind of a little, like in that group as well. Like as the 
talent pools are building, they're also just starting to get some retirement. But yes, to answer your question, I mean, it's definitely better. And what I will say is you've got to kind of start somewhere, even if you don't have all of the women that you would need to fill out all the divisions and you got to start somewhere because it inspires other women to get into it and to do it. I admire that the UFC picked it up and and did what they did with it because now look, you know, there's three divisions in the, in the UFC and they're flourishing and they're doing great. So there's great champions. I mean, these ladies are just beasts and killers all all the way from 115 to 135, 145, excuse me. I guess it's kind of a 145 pound division. It's kind of not sure what's going on with that one. It's subject to be cut, I think, if Amanda retires. So maybe there's not quite enough women yet, but I think the good old saying that if you build it, they will come. If they see the opportunity, they will rise, you know, and you will get it. It's kind of like Ugh, I, I grimace a little when I hear that because I feel like it's like chasing your own tail and if you're waiting for the women to come but there's no opportunity for them to come it's going to be a really a struggle to ever get it to where you feel like you should put it on a mainstream platform all I can say for my sport is that the UFC chose to go all in and now look where it's at in terms of your retirement I believe it was the same night as your announcement but Dana White came out and he said he didn't see your retirement coming did you no, <laughs> I didn't either. No, I didn't. I didn't. I just felt awful in that fight. I didn't feel like I was mentally there. And I felt off in the fight before that as well against Amanda. And I felt like I was losing focus on the sport and the love that I had for it was different, had changed, all those things. And it's extremely challenging to go through that as, a, as an athlete. And I didn't want to be one of those people that hung around and tarnished what I had built in my career if I wasn't all in it. I'm either 100% in or 100% out. And at that point, I knew I had to be out because I wasn't 100% in. You know, 80% is not good enough. Now, you talked about maybe another title shot with Ronda Rousey earlier, but do you have any regrets about doing it when you did? No, not at all. Like, it was really the right thing to do. I never wanted to feel like that in another fight again. And I felt like if I didn't retire at that point, that that was the path my career was on. I think, uh, you know, Raquel Pennington was my last opponent, and I think she's she's amazing in so many ways. But I think if I could have a 100% dedication, you know, that's a fight that I should win or should have won. And I just kind of survived in there. And I wasn't able to pull the trigger. I wasn't able to light the fire. I wasn't able to do all those things. And I think unless you've been in that situation, it's really hard to explain that feeling. It's not a good feeling, and it's one that I just had to be honest with myself about. I didn't want to sit there and tell myself, no, it's okay. You know, try again for the next one. It's like, no, this is like slippery slope. I didn't know, you know, if my retirement would be forever at the time, but it, you know, years have gone by now and I'm still good where I'm at. So I guess, you know, it was the right decision. And a listener question from Kevin in Camden. He he wants to know, did you ever think of pursuing a professional wrestling career like WWE, like Lesnar and Rousey? Um, not before they started kind of like showing me, like I thought about it before Rhonda had joined as like just lightly, right? So it's not like something I put plans or vested interest to, but I was like, would I do it? I'm like, you know, it sounds really challenging. And it was probably actually when I did a movie called Fight Valley, um, just like a little chintzy movie, but it was fun. And it was really challenging to learn the acting aspect of it. 
And I'm like, this is way more fun and challenging than I ever thought it would be. And for that reason, it kind of got me thinking like, how fun might it be to do something like the WWE, even though it's not something I grew up watching. It's not something that I follow. I'm not, I'm not trying to sit here and say I'm a big fan or anything like that. But I thought, would I ever try it? I'm like, yeah, you know, I think if the stars aligned and it was an opportunity that came my way, I would, but I've never bothered to pursue it or reach out. And it's one of those things I feel like if it finds me, then it's meant to be. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, but this kind of stuck in me as a competitor myself, Rhonda on Ellen DeGeneres, she said how, when she contemplated retirement, depression, and all these other things after the loss to Holly Holm, she said, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I kind of thought like, wow, like I get that because a lot of the times athletes become like their sport and their athletic persona becomes their identity. What were the thoughts in your moments of self-reflection when it was really, really over? To be honest, I, I mean, it is a scary transition because you don't know what's next, but that's also, it was kind of exhilarating for me because I saw it as an opportunity to learn more about myself. Who am I beyond Misha the fighter? And I was really excited to discover that. Was family ever a part of the decision to retire? Nope. I still was not sure that I wanted to have kids. I was kind of always somebody who was on the fence about that. Like maybe if I, you know, meet the right guy and I want to, you know, maybe, but I'm also totally cool if not. And I was also thinking probably not. When I met Johnny, you know, things just kind of happened fast and he's just such an amazing man. And I'm so happy that we have a beautiful family now and, and all that good stuff. But no, to, to answer your question at the time, was it a factor? It's, it, it wasn't because I was single at the time when I retired and I was just kind of thinking, I want to just have an opportunity to discover more about myself. Your mommy too. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It seems that I wanted, I had to ask you about this because it seems neither really came easy. Your daughter was 72 hours of labor uh, with your first and now your second. Well, let's just say he took those stay at home orders very seriously. (laughs) I know I would be absolutely freaking terrified, but what the heck were you thinking as you were giving birth in your bathroom? Yeah, he came on three hours. So, I mean, I was trying to take what I, my experience from my first birth and apply it to my second. And it was just not at all the same, but I'll tell you what, I felt very calm and very in control. And I felt very good about that. And that's not something that I'm like giving myself any credit for. Like instinctually, it's something I worked really hard for actually, because I was terrified after my first birth experience, because I tried to have a Maya at home. We had planned and prepped for a home birth. And I think maybe that helped too, you know, being here and just realizing, hey, we're going to do this at home. It's like, well, we've, we kind of accepted that mentality once before. Let's just throw it back into the, into the game and start over. So I was terrified because the labor was so long and so grueling with my first that when I finally decided I wanted to do natural again, I wanted to try to do no epidural and, and go the natural route, although it was supposed to be at the hospital. I had done like hypnobirthing, I did a spinning babies course, I did yoga, and these are all things that I was so naive to and so stubborn, such a fighter mentality. So I was just like, I got this. Like with my first, with Amaya, I was like, I'm tough. I was like, I got this. Like I'm, you know, one of the, like, I'm so mentally strong. You know, I was just like floating my own boat. Like, oh, I've got this, you know? Labor proved me wrong. I am not tough. It was really hard. It was really challenging, but I didn't prepare for it the way that I should have. I prepared for it like a fight. And labor is not like a fight. 
fighting is like fighting fire with fire. Labor is like fighting fire with water. And I had to become the water this time. And that's something I've never done before. I'm not a very Zen person. You know, I'm, I'm a relaxed person, but I'm not, I don't, I thought yoga, I didn't like yoga. It's not intense enough for me. I, I just, I like intense workouts and, and I'm just not a fan of that. And then I thought, you know, hypnobirthing, I was like, you know, that sounds so silly, so froofy, like, my gosh, like these people, you know, and then I just totally turned a new leaf and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this this time because I ended up getting an epidural with my, my first labor two and a half days in, I was just like, I couldn't eat, couldn't drink. And, and anyways, it taught me a very valuable lesson. And my approach essentially to labor was a, just a different purpose to it. The purpose is to work on your breathing, to become one with your, your senses and your body and like all these different objectives that I just, I had the wrong objectives. It's like going into a game of chess with the strategy of checkers for people who maybe play board games. Like that's kind of, it's just like, I came in with the wrong objective for everything and I got the worst result because of it. I don't know. I feel like I got carried away and like, maybe I'm even missed your whole, oh, your question was I like, no, I was so calm and cool. I felt really good. And I, I had my hypno birthing track playing. I was just like, I was in the zone. I was like, huh? Oh, I was like totally Zen. I was tapping into a part of myself that I've never, I've never had to really like reach into before, except maybe keeping your calm during high stress situations and fights. Like maybe that could be something I say, maybe translated, but no, totally different mindset, totally different preparation. And I remember Johnny was like, should we call the ambulance? Because we first we were decided like, should I try to get into a grab? And I was like, there is no way in hell I'm getting my ass up off this floor and walking it down the hallway and getting in an elevator and going downstairs and getting in a car. I was like, it's not going to happen. Like, I don't care if you could carry me. I'm not moving. So I was like, we're having the baby here. And then he's like, should we call the ambulance? Because I mean, it's stressful. I think as a dad there, right? That's got to be the worst. Because you're like, if something goes wrong, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm the person who's supposed to make sure all this stuff goes right. She's birthing the baby. I got to make sure everyone's healthy. This is all COVID umbrella too, this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, COVID. So we're not like, you know, we had a doula that was supposed to meet us at the hospital, but she couldn't even like come over. Like it was just such, yeah, lockdown and all the craziness going on. So I was like, between contractions, I'm like no ambulance. Cause like, I just felt confident. I felt confident enough that like, I can do this. My body can do this. And that's what I've been telling myself for the past nine months. And I'm going to, I don't know if I can cuss, but I'm going to do this. That's literally what was going through my mind. It's like, I'm going to do this. And we did. And we had baby at home and it was just the two of us. And it was an incredible experience. We have a live-in helper here that kind of helps with Amaya. And so she was watching Amaya and Amaya got to come around the corner, my daughter, just as the baby, like I pulled the baby up onto my chest. Like she came and she got to see her brother and be part of that experience. Um, oh, it makes me emotional even thinking about it. It was so beautiful. I wouldn't change nothing about it. I wouldn't, no way. Like it was the most incredible experience. It's just absolutely amazing. Thank you. Yeah. It was, it was so cool. Like women are so powerful and so it's like, so birth is just such an incredible process. And you know, I'm a firm believer that we just kind of need to stop being bystanders in the choices that happen and in our birth, you know, and like, it's so crazy how a lot of women are so afraid of birth and I totally get it because I've been there, but now I have like both perspectives and I'm like, man, we were made to do this. Like women can totally do it and it shouldn't be something that we're scared of at all. Cause it's just like, 
man, we are just incredible. And the power that we're able to harness if we're in the right mindset is like, man, we're soldiers, we're warriors. <laughs> well, you're taking your warrior status to a brand new venture here. One championship vice president, VP, excuse me. <laughs> we're on a 12 hour time difference. I'm in New Jersey, you're in Singapore, you're the VP. Building on your experience from the UFC, um, what maybe was item number one on Misha Tate's agenda coming into this new role? I wanted to just help be an icon over in Asia and this other part of the world. And I say icon, I feel like that sounds kind of egotistical. I guess not icon, maybe role model. That's a much better word. I wanted to be just somebody basically that women could look to and say, you know, she's done it before because in the Western market, in the US and, and any kind of Westernized culture, women are getting pretty good opportunity alongside the men. And I'm so grateful to see that change. But culturally throughout Asia and like throughout this part of the world, there are a lot of women who still just face that uphill battle of getting acceptance, even permission sometimes, you know, from parents or whatever to start doing sports that will give them a future in this career. I mean, most people don't pick up MMA as an adult and start fighting professionally, right? It's something that they did Taekwondo when they were little, or they did jujitsu or the wrestling or whatever. And it kind of gave them the fundamental to carry forward. And when people are not giving the same opportunity, equal opportunity to their daughters as their sons, it's unfortunate. So I guess I just wanted to be somebody who the girls could say, you know, but she did it. If she did it, I can do it. That's really it. I just wanted to be that message and a beacon of hope for girls who want to dream big and do great things. And it doesn't even have to just be fighting. It could just being a strong and independent woman, you know? I, so I guess that's it was my messaging and any girls who wanted to fight and their parents were maybe questioning the opportunity that they could have to do it. I was hoping that maybe they could look to me and I could probably hopefully be more hands-on with that. So change, change for the better. That's really what I, what I wanted to do and influence over here. And it's, you know, it's been going good. I feel like that's in my heart of hearts, like what I wanted to do. But my job is obviously encompasses a lot more than that. I get to interview athletes after their fights and I've done commentating and I've do a, I work a lot with the production team. So we create a lot of content. I sit in front of a camera a lot and tell people about how great the fights are going to be. And, you know, I do, I really enjoy my job and it's been interesting living here in Singapore, especially with the pandemic, pretty, pretty safe and quiet over here in Singapore. I got another second listener question, Mike from Queens. Um, he, he's looking to get into this one championship and he wants to know, in your opinion, what is the biggest difference in being involved in a match in Asia versus the United States? That'd be a great question for like Eddie Alvarez or Demetrius Johnson, because they've actually had the perspective of fighting in both, you know, the UFC and coming over here. But let me maybe take a little bit of my own and paraphrase some of the things that they've said as well, too. And they said um, that here in Asia, like fighting the talent here, like pe people are very passionate and you also have to understand that a lot of the fighters here come from economically deprived backgrounds. This is all they have. They don't have, you know, they're not privileged. They are a lot of times coming from the bottom rungs of society that they really have no other opportunity. They didn't have an opportunity at an education. They didn't have an opportunity. They come from poor families and they got into fighting, you know, like, like I'll use Stamp Fairtex as an example. Stamp Fairtex is the um, 115 pound champion in Muay Thai. And she just recently uh, lost her kickboxing. So she was the first dual world champion uh, for one championship. But anyways, her story at eight years old, she was the breadwinner of her family, meaning she's making more money than her dad and more money than her mom 
by doing Muay Thai. So the kids in Thailand, they walk around with this like flower looking necklace. They walk around through the audience and they ask people for donations. And when people donate, they put it all on their, on their necklace and whoever has the most money going into the fight is supposed to have the most good luck. That's how they basically make their money because they don't really get paid to fight. So it's just walking around through donations that you audience. So think about that for a second. You know, you have a girl who's eight years old who has provided for her family in the way of fighting and that's how they survived. And now she's a champion, you know, making millions of dollars and doing amazing things and able to buy a home for... When you have a person who came from that life, they just fight differently. They fight with like all their heart and soul because that's all they have. And so for me, when I watch a lot of these guys fight, you know, coming from the Philippines and Thailand and Myanmar and, uh, oh man, all, all across Asia and the world. I mean, we have fighters across the globe, but when I'm talking about Asia here, they just fight with a soulful purpose. And it's just a really beautiful thing to watch. They're, they're quite amazing. So I think that for me would be, would be the difference. And they're very talented though. I mean, just cause they come from like, you know, a lot of them, not all of them come from some poorer backgrounds, man. They work so hard. It's day in, day out. They're learning, they're, they're researching, they're doing everything that they can to become the best fighters and they're doing a hell of a job at it. It's just amazing what people can do with limited resources when you are just driven and you're passionate. Is it meant to be eventually one day in competition with UFC or together with UFC, a merger? What is the long-term scope? Well, um, no, I mean, I, I don't see us doing a merger. I think it's one of those things that there's like plenty of fish in the sea. Like there's plenty of room for plenty of fish in the sea. And like Trajan has this great saying that, you know, a rising tide makes all the ships float higher. And we all kind of rise together. So having some healthy competition is a great thing. I mean, what a boring world if nobody had any competition. If you look at it that way, you know, it's like, I think it's good for the UFC. It's good for Bellator. It's good for PFL. It's good for one championship to have differences and to have competition. That's where we're at. And like, we want to come to the US. Like obviously COVID put a big damper on that. We kind of wanted to come Q4 of 2020, which clearly is not going to happen now, but we're friendly. You know, we've traded fighters before. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just think it's a different, we also have a different different uh, way, you know, we're more about the values and, and more about the, you know, martial arts and not less about the trash talking and the rivalries and less about that stuff. Some people like that and they just want to tune in for great fights and heartfelt stories of triumph and be motivated. And I feel like watching a one championship event is kind of like watching a Rocky movie. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of story where you're just like, yeah, you know, you want the person to win because you know, they've been through so much and they do a great job of telling the background story of these fighters and man, the things that they go through and you're just like, you can't help but like be invested and want them to win. And you feel good about that as opposed to like some of the crazy stuff that happens in the UFC, which is fun as well. You know, there's no right or wrong. It's just different. And we also do kickboxing and Muay Thai. Um, and the Muay Thai fighters put on four ounce MMA gloves, which is like devastating. They, they're just killers. Put on those four ounce gloves and they're some of the world's best strikers. And you always hear about in MMA how people like to watch the striking element of it. So we kind of take that and add a little bit more, you know, more of the striking element by having pure striking fights. So it's just different. Well, when you bring it to New York, I want to go. I, when you go up to the garden, with yeah. it, I'm coming. Yes, yeah, you will be my guest. Misha, I could talk to you all night, really, seriously, but I just wanted to end with this. This is one of my favorite questions. If there were to be, and, and I'm going to say there probably will be, a documentary or biography written about you, what would you want it to be titled? Maybe a, like a, a combination of the words adversity and triumph. I definitely feel like adversity would have to be part of the title. Maybe addicted to adversity. 
that's always something I, that I felt kind of sums up my personality and my career. Maybe like adversity is not the right word. I flourish in it. I do well in it. I overcome it. And I, I enjoy the challenge. Nobody enjoys falling down, but there is something very rewarding about when you get knocked down, finding the power within yourself to get back up. That is one of the most rewarding feelings in the world. And it removes a lot of fear about taking risk in life, not just fighting, but in life. When you know that you have the ability to pick yourself up from rock bottom and build it all again, do it all over again and make yourself again and make yourself better and stronger, then you don't worry so much about the next time that you fall down. Misha Tate, thank you so much for joining us. You were great. This was an excellent, awesome interview. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. You seriously, you're killing the game. Good job. Way to like lead like women and inspire people like women and men, I'm sure too. Being a uh, pioneer of women in the field. And I, I certainly think that you're one of those as well. Like you totally killed it. Great interview. Some questions I've never been asked before, which I would think at this career, I've been asked everything, but no, you threw some curveballs in there. So I loved it. And thank you for that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Power Players powered by Radio.com. Make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so that you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And while you're at it, could you throw it a rating or a comment if you're so inclined? Do you want to ask a question to my guest in my upcoming shows? Hit me up on Twitter at Coach M-C-C-A-R-T-A-N and Facebook.com slash Coach McCartan. See you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.